who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to episode 14 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 33. Preparations. With Frank and the quarrymen back from town, the pace in the village picked up. Tanith watched with a certain fascination as the men dug out the pit they'd used to saw the planks that built the barn and houses when the village was first established. It lay just off the path to the barn and ran the length of a small gully in the woods that was otherwise unremarkable. While Jakey supervised the quarrymen on the shovel detail, William and Frank put Bester in harness and used the ox to drag the salvage logs up to the barn. It took all day to dig out the pit, and by that time, Bester and William had fetched all the logs and stacked them for cutting. Most of the timbers were ten feet long and were already flattened on two sides from where they'd been used for the houses. To Tanith, it seemed like a very tall pile of logs. William saw her looking at it and grinned. Seems like a big pile, doesn't it, Mom? That it does, William. That's just two houses worth? Oh, aye, Mom, just the two. Although we're thinking we may take two more. With the lay of the land and where we think the foundation should go, Amber and I are thinking we should give up our house and move into one of the empty ones across from you. I think Ethan and Bethany may move over one as well. She shook her head in wonder. You know, William, when I suggested you build an inn, I had no idea, really, how much was involved. He laughed softly. Neither did I, Mum, but the nice thing about having this group, somebody knows something about anything we want. Jakey came from a hard stone quarry. Ethan knows building. Harry's a good hand with the stock, even though he spends most of his time in clay. I know how to build boats and do designs, but they make sure I don't make any mistakes when I bring my boats ashore and turn them into roofs and walls. She smiled at him. You did well to pick this group, then. He looked at them, all working diligently away. They picked me, actually, Mum. When they heard what I proposed, they all found me out and wanted to join. Most of them stuck with us, even though we lost a few. I think we'll see more join us when the inn gets going. Jakey called down to the crew in the pit, and they crawled out of the hole, headed to the storage room to put away their tools. He walked over to William and nodded to Tanith. Well, there's the hole, Will. We just need to get the bracing in place to hold the logs, and we're ready to rip some lumber. Easier the second time, huh? He grinned at the burly quarryman. Oh, aye, that it is. What do you think about foundation stones? Jakey grimaced and ran a hand over his mouth. We need some, but I don't know of any good rock around here to take. 
There's some good granite up behind where we're digging out the clay, but we don't have the tools or the knowledge to get it out and down where we need it. That's what I thought, too. William turned and looked down the path to where the inn would go. What'd you think about foundation, then? Jakey followed his gaze and sucked air through his teeth. That's going to be a heavy building. We got away with putting the logs on the ground for the houses. They'll rot out, sure enough, but they're small. We can replace the whole house if we need to. He shook his head. I've been thinking about that foundation ever since you said you wanted to do it, and I don't have any real good answers. I was afraid of that. What's Ethan say? Jakey shrugged. He's got some ideas. He raised his voice and called Ethan over. As the younger man approached, Jakey jerked his head to where the inn would be. What you think about foundation? Ethan grimaced. Full stone would be the best in this ground. Logs will rot too fast, not much weight on them. I doubt the building could stay plumb past the first good freeze. Jakey and William nodded in agreement. William looked him in the eye. We don't have stones enough to do a full foundation. We don't have enough locally here to cut stone. What do we do? Ethan squinted his eyes as if to see better. We got coins enough to buy some? Perhaps a few? Why? Arlton cuts bluestone for the trade. If we got nine stone posts with footers, we could sink the footers down below Frostline, use the posts to keep the building off the ground, and then build from there. Both men nodded. He made good sense. William looked in toward the barn. Can the lorry wagon handle that much load? Jakey shrugged, but Ethan nodded an affirmative. It should. I don't think they'll weigh as much as the clay. Six horses should be able to haul it on the open road easier than those barrels. William looked at Ethan. All right, then. You know what we need. In the morning, I want you to head up to Arlton and arrange for them to cut it for us. Can you do that? Ethan shrugged. Sure, think so. Good. Tell them we need it by Hunter's Moon and we'll send Frank to pick it up in the lorry wagon, but they'll have to load it for him. That shouldn't be a problem. Jakey stuck his chin up to get their attention. Do we need stones for the hearth or ovens? William shook his head. I had Frank order oven brick from Megan's father while he was in town. Should be here in a couple weeks. They're sending a shipment down to Easton and they'll drop it off on the way by. Jakey grinned and whistled in appreciation. Well, my goodness, ain't we getting fancy now? Oven brick and everything. Ethan snickered. Well, from what I heard, we get an inn out here and Harry's going to be seeing more of his in-laws than he might like. Jakey's smile got broader. What? They can't come live like common folk? Ethan shrugged. Something about the grandkids and not wanting to sleep on the ground. William laughed at that. How do they think they're going to get out here? Fly? Ethan grinned good-naturedly. I don't know, but Harry was spitting all the way back, so apparently it's not just noise. When the chuckling died down, William refocused the discussion. So we sink the posts in the corners, the middles, and one in the center, run footers and build from there. Ethan looked back at the empty lot. Tanith could practically see him measuring with his eyes. Yeah, should be about right. You're going to put the chimney up the middle? About two-thirds of the way back. We got stone and mortar enough for that, and I got a hearthstone all picked out for it. William turned to Jakey. You still think you can make two fireplaces in the oven into one chimney? Jakey pursed his lips and nodded. Oh, yeah, easier to do that than make two chimneys. Bigger base to work on. It'll be heavy, but we can put that on the ground. Give it its own foundation of packed rock and gravel. The all-father knows we got enough rock and gravel. They chuckled, and William dusted his hands together. Well, I guess that's it for now. He turned to the younger man. See me in the morning before you leave, Ethan, and I'll give you some coin for the down payment. Ethan nodded and headed off down the path toward his house. Jakey knuckled his forehead and nodded politely to Tanith and followed him. William turned back to her. You still think it's a good idea, Mom? She laughed. I better. You already bought the brick. We can always use the brick.
He looked her in the eye. Seriously, Mom, you think we should? She leaned on her staff and raised her head, drawing a full breath of the musky fall air in through her nose. The sun was going down behind the trees, and the village fairly vibrated with life. She blew the air out through her mouth. Yes. She turned to him. But why is my opinion so important, William? She jerked her chin in the direction of the houses. This is your village. These are your people. Why does what I think matter so much? Mom, you have the benefit of age and wisdom, and you travel from one end of this land to the other. Tannis started to snicker and waved her hand dismissively, but William pressed on, his voice low, steady, and earnestly serious. You killed to protect us, and you bled from the battle. You're a gift from the All-Mother. Your opinion matters because if you believe in us, we can believe in us. He smiled down at her. And if we believe we can, we will. His words sent a rush of embarrassment through her, but everything he said was true, except possibly about her wisdom. She was caught speechless and just looked into his very serious and very young face. So, do you believe in us, Mum? She smiled then and nodded. Yes, William, I do. Good. Thank you, Mum. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to make sure that Frank's got the saw ready for us and then go grab some dinner. The evening was closing in fast, and the shorter days were telling. She nodded, and he headed for the storage room while she stood for a few more moments and admired the view. The darkening night masked the colors, but here and there a brilliant yellow still reflected enough light to stand out of the dusk. She listened to the wind through the treetops, and her eyes searched the tall fir to see if she could spy the raven looking down. She couldn't, and she wondered, idly, if the episodes had been nothing but her imagination after all. She sighed and was surprised to feel the disappointment. She would have liked to feel like she was special, magical. Something other than an old fool. She muttered it aloud to the setting sun before setting off down the path to find a cup of tea for herself. She worked herself into a high dudgeon as she strode along, ignoring the twinges from the cut down her belly and striking the earth with her staff harder than she needed to. She knew she was being pouty, but she didn't care, and she vented her frustration in the night by stomping along like a five-year-old, told she couldn't have a sweet before dinner. The image delighted her, and she screwed up her face the way she remembered her own Robert used to, and pretended she was a pouting five-year-old, for no other reason than her own amusement. The silliness of it washed over her, and she laughed aloud at herself. Her stride loosened, and she stopped stabbing the ground with her staff on every stop. By the time she got to her house, she was in pretty good spirits thinking about which tea she'd like to have and what she'd like for dinner. She got almost to her door before she realized that Thomas had been there and left a fine, fat hair hanging on the peg at the edge of the roof. The shape swung gently in the soft night air. She looked up at it and smiled. He was such a thoughtful man. A familiar soft croaking sound drew her eyes upward even further, and she looked into the golden eyes of the raven perched politely on the ridgepole of her roof. Well, there you are. She looked at the rabbit and then back to the raven. Come for dinner, have you? The raven croaked again. Well, give me a minute and I'll find you a piece or two. Chapter 34. Room and Boards Tanith woke with the sunrise and crawled out of her bedroom. It promised to be a busy day and she didn't want to miss a minute of it. It felt good to be up and about. She stirred up the fire and added a couple of small sticks before pushing the tea kettle closer to the heat. Her porridge was cool, but she slopped a little warm water on the top and gave it a stir. It would warm, and the apple she'd cored and put in the night before gave it a lovely smell. 
She pulled warm clothes out of the bedroll and slipped baggy pants on over her naked and now chilly legs. A warm pair of socks covered naked toes, and her warm boots slipped easily onto her feet. She stamped them down and grabbed a wrap before bolting for the privy. Shouldn't have waited so long. It was a good-natured grumble and almost made her giggle. Only the thought that giggling might yield damp consequences kept her from doing it. Taking the return trip a bit more sedately, she noticed that frost had touched the grass in some of the sheltered areas. She knew it wouldn't be long before every morning would be a frosty one. She marveled that this would be the first winter in her life that she wouldn't be stuck in a cottage with somebody else. For the past twenty winters, she'd lived with her teachers, each of them asking only her help during the coldest months, and in return feeding her and letting her stay warm by their fires. She'd whiled away long dark hours in discussions over this or that preparation, how to best get the goodness from some herb or other, and the most useful ways for combining beeswax and oils to make salves and balms. This winter she was the old woman. She was amused to think that others valued her as more than just an extra pair of hands or a strong back. She wondered if she should give up on her plan of finding Mother Pinecrest and stay in the village for a while. In the forest, the raven cawed loudly. Perhaps not, she muttered it to herself. By the time she got back to her hut, the water was boiling, the oatmeal was warm, and the sun peeked over the tree line across the way. She made short work of her breakfast and cleaned up the pots before refilling the tea kettle, banking the fire, and dressing for a walk up to the saw pit. She'd never seen planks being cut. She found the idea oddly interesting. It seemed almost incomprehensible that men would be able to saw the length of those logs, not just once, but several times in order to turn them into boards. She knew in her mind that they would, but in her heart the labor seemed prodigious. When she got there, hat on head and staff in hand, the crews had already assembled. Jakey, William, and Frank would be on top of the logs, pulling the saw up and keeping the line straight. Harry, James, and Matthew would be in the pit, pulling the saw back down again. They'd work in pairs, only one pair at a time, but trading off regularly to keep fresh. The men treated the saw, a long band of toothed steel, with all the respect to a poisonous snake. The teeth could bite flesh as easily as wood, and nobody wanted to get a bite taken out of them. Tanith could relate to that. Frank took the first turn on top, and Harry clambered down into the pit. The log itself was held on a clever arrangement of crossbars and supports that could be moved to allow the saw's passage. Before he began, Frank took a ball of heavy cord and unrolled it along the length of the log. He rubbed it with a block of chalk, and with Jakey's help, snapped it along the length of the log, leaving a clean white line about an inch from the side. Frank lifted the saw off its supports and lowered the end down into the pit very carefully. Are you ready, Harry? Tanith watched the bending steel straighten and line up as Harry took the handle on his end, and Frank kept attention on the top. Ready, Frank? Harry's voice sounded muffled. Easy does it, then. Frank placed the saw on the mark where it crossed the end of the log and slowly pulled the handle upward. When he got to the end of his stroke, he paused before Harry started pulling down from the other. Frank kept just enough tension on the handle to keep the steel level and straight. They moved cautiously at first, getting a feel for the saw, the wood, and the rhythm of the movement. Within ten strokes, they moved rapidly up and down, the saw ringing almost musically as it rasped through the wood. They sawed steadily for nearly a quarter hour before Frank and Harry traded off to Jakey and Matthew. The sawing continued. Tanith watched for maybe half an hour more as the pairs traded off after each short shift. Amber, Sadie, and Megan came up the path and smiled at Tanith, watching the sawing. Amber smiled brightly and nodded at the men. Good morning, Mom. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Tanith shook her head. I've never seen anything like it. 
Sadie took her by the arm and continued up the path to the barn. Well, come on, Mom. They'll be there for days cutting logs. We got work to do. She grinned and leaned in close to whisper. Besides, if you're standing there watching, Frank will be so busy showing off he may hurt himself. Amber overheard, and her laughter trilled through the woods, even over the sound of the whipsaw. Megan walked up beside them and tutted Sadie. You stop being rude. How do you know I was being rude? You didn't hear what I said. She sniffed. Amber only laughs like that when you are, and Mother Fairport's blushing. Sadie and Amber both laughed at that and continued on their way through the barn to the storage area in the back. Amber took charge as they entered the workroom. All right, we need the work table set up, fire laid, kettle put on for tea. With surprising efficiency, Tanith found herself lighting the fire while Megan ran a bucket to the pump, and Amber and Sadie wrestled some of the horses and planks into place to form a work surface. In addition to the food supplies, Frank had also brought back bolts of winterweight fabrics, skeins of yarn for knitting, along with spools of heavy thread, and three cards of needles. So while the men worked in the saw pit, the women moved into the workroom and set to work outfitting the village in winter clothing. The adults only needed to have their winter gear checked and patched, but each child in the village needed to be outfitted anew for the coming season. In most cases, that meant passing the heavy clothes from older child to younger, but need outnumbered the available hand-me-downs, and everybody needed something. Tanith needed something warmer for outerwear, and some warmer shifts and some leggings. The houses were snug, and the winter snows served to insulate them even more. But the temperatures were frigid, and even inside, with the fire going, they were never as warm as a summer day. Amber, Sadie, and Megan, having spent so much time helping Tanith with her recovery, took to having her join their sewing circle with ready familiarity. When Charlotte and Bethany joined them in the workroom, they treated her with a shy reserve at first, even seeming to be shocked by some of the lack of reserve shown by the others. Over time, as they became more comfortable, the six women relaxed in each other's company and got on with the tasks of stitch and hem. The days took on a rhythm that was as much driven by the rasp, rasp, rasp of the saw as the passage of the sun through the sky. It became common for the men coming off the saw to walk into the workroom for tea or just water and to chat for a few moments before returning to their labors. Even lunch was done in shifts with the work not stopping for food but with the men grabbing bites between their turns at the handles. The days grew steadily shorter and the harder frosts pinched off the softer plants. The leaves all turned to festive colors and then fell to the ground, leaving bare branches stark against the sky. Dark green pine, spruce, and hemlocks stood out in patches among the drab grays and browns. Migrating birds filled the sky with wings as the axe moon gave way to hunters. On the new moon that marked the end of the month of the axe, the work of sawing boards came to an end. The stack of planks was impressive, and William calculated it would be enough for their immediate needs. There were still posts and beams that needed shaping, but that would be done with the logs that William had felled earlier in the fall. In the meantime, one more task remained before they could begin construction on the inn proper. The village was up early in the cold, breath puffing in the light chill of pre-dawn. Frank, Jakey, and William took the empty lorry wagon and headed south to the town of Hendricks Crossing. While they were gone, most of the villagers went up to the hayloft in the barn and began moving the old hay out of the way. Some of it went to chink cracks, some was tied in bundles, the bundles laid out along the foundations of the more exposed houses. More was spread as mulch over those root crops that were still in the ground. In the end, the hayloft was cleared, and they opened the large door at the top of the barn to let the cold air blow through and air the place out. Tanith watched the preparation with some trepidation, even as she tended the fire in the workroom with Megan. What if there's not enough? Megan shrugged. Well, that's a chance for everyone, isn't it, Mum? But the people down in Hendricks have never let us down yet. It's a good year for hay. Not too wet, not too dry, and we pay good gold for the feed for our beasts. 
and they have the best fields around. The idea of buying feed just seems odd. What do they feed their animals? Megan grinned. Well, same as we do. They just have more fields. We have more woods. That first year, we traded wood for hay, but when we stopped cutting trees, we offered them cash instead. They took it gladly. Good coin is hard to come by out here, and not everything can be bartered for. Tanith blinked at Megan. I thought William said we had no coin out here. We kept all the money in town. He did. Frank brought it back with him from town, just enough to pay the hay factor at Hendricks, and maybe a few extra. It's how we've done it these last few winters, and it seems to work out. Well, I suppose you do what works. She nodded and took a pot of tea and some mugs out to the workers. Three days later, the lorry wagon was back, piled high with hay, held down and protected from the weather by a broad swatch of canvas. It took almost half a day to unload the hay and get it all up into the barn's loft, even with everybody helping. Amber invited Tanith to dinner that night, a festive meal with Frank, Thomas, Sadie, Amber, and all the children. Thomas had taken several fat geese earlier in the week, and most of them were being spit-roasted in various of the houses in the village. Amber and Sadie had spent the day cooking together and had built a feast of roasted vegetables, bread, and spitted goose. As they settled in for their meal, Amber turned to Frank. So you ready to go out again? He shook his head with a chuckle. No, but I guess I better be, huh? He sighed and worked his shoulders. At least driving six horses isn't as hard as pulling a saw. William groaned sympathetically. Oh, that's true. Tomorrow I've got to get the foundation holes dug before the ground freezes. Thomas looked up from a trencher of goose. You took a chance waiting this long, didn't you? Not really. Doesn't usually freeze until Hunter's Moon. And besides, we needed to get the boards cut so we'll be able to tack the whole thing in place. True. Thomas turned to Frank. You think the placement is right now? Of the inn? Thomas bobbed his head. Yeah, I do. Building it up around the pump, we won't be dragging buckets of water to the inn. Maybe we can put in a horse trough. William snapped his fingers. I knew there was something I was forgetting. They all looked at him. We need to put an extension on the barn so we can stable more horses. Sadie looked down the table at William. Why not just put some stalls in the workroom? Amber looked shocked. Where will we work? Sadie grinned. At the inn. I have a feeling we'll be spending a lot of time there, and it'll be a lot bigger than the workroom is now. Amber seemed startled by the idea, but frowned in concentration as she considered it. Of course. William smiled at Sadie. That's a good idea. I should have thought of that. Amber patted his arm. That's okay, dear. We keep you around for your looks and your strong back, not your keen mind. She gathered Sadie and Tanith with her eyes. We'll do the heavy thinking. You boys just do the heavy lifting. They all laughed, and William raised his mug and toast. To my friends with good looks and strong backs, and the lovely women who let us stay around. Everybody laughed and clinked mugs. They filled up on the rich bread and hot meat. Eventually the little ones crawled off to their corner to huddle in the pile under the covers, leaving the adults to graze among the leftovers. As the conversation started flagging, Tanith turned to William. Did the sawing help or hurt your shoulder? He grinned and put a hand to his wounded arm. That first day it hurt a lot. The second day, the rest of me hurt so much I didn't notice. By the fourth day, I was getting used to it again. He jerked his head at Frank. There's the man who was sore. Frank hung his head. I got a bit overextended, but I worked through it. Tanith shook her head. I should have thought. Mother Alderton left some liniments that would have helped sore muscles. Sadie giggled. You should have said something, Frank. I bet Mother Fairport would have been happy to rub your sore shoulders for you. She winked at Tanith, and Amber laughed. Tanith blushed, and she thought Frank did too, but she was too embarrassed to look. Thomas changed the subject. How we fix for firewood, William? You haven't had a chance to cut for a while. Out of respect for Mother Tanith, he tried to follow Thomas's lead. 
We've enough for the time being, I think. When we get the inn going so we can leave Ethan overseeing the bill, they'll be able to go out again. There's still a month's supply in the barn, and I think all the huts have full wood boxes. Sadie mumbled something about Mother Fairport's wood box needing filling that didn't carry all the way to the head of the table, but had Amber choking on her tea and Thomas and William looking confused. Frank, for his part, just sighed and muttered, Kids. Tanith braved a glance in his direction and thought she saw a small smile on his face, but he kept it hidden behind his teacup until the general jocularity petered out. As the laughter faded, the party broke up, and Tanith returned to her hut while Frank headed for the barn to check on the horses. Thomas and Sadie walked arm in arm toward their house, and Sadie spoke earnestly to Thomas. Tanith couldn't hear the conversation, only the tone. About halfway home, she heard Thomas bark a laugh before it was loudly shushed and she groaned. Now everybody is going to know about my wood box. She sighed and let herself into the house, latching the door closed against the cold. She debated stirring the fire up, but decided to leave it banked until morning. She changed quickly into a night shift before crawling into her bedroll. It was desperately cold, and she shivered for a few moments before her body heat began to drive out the chill. She rolled over onto her belt knife and gasped at the feel of the hard metal pressing into her side, but she reached down and slipped it to a more comfortable position. She felt a little silly keeping up her habit of the road, but shrugged it off, and within a few minutes her body heat created a pocket of warmth between the heavy layers of covers on top and the sweet grass ticking in the woolen cot liner beneath her. She forgot about the knife and drifted off to sleep. At daybreak, she heard the wagon leaving the village on the next run for hay. Chapter 35. First Snow The first snow of the season fell on the morning of Hunter's Moon. Tanith heard the difference when she woke. There was something in the air, a quiet that didn't match the other mornings. The gray sky with drifting flakes kept the sun from brightening the day, and her hut was unnaturally dark. She shivered as she crawled out of her bedroll. Her left knee shot a twinge up her leg. Cold always made it worse, and changes in the weather added sand to the ointment. She'd taken to sleeping in her socks and slipped from bed to boot without touching the floor. Her night shift, a warm flannel gown that Amber and Sadie had made for her, fell around her ankles as she stood. It helped keep the warmth close to her body, but she still slipped on a shawl before poking up the fire and adding a few sticks of wood. When she opened the door to head for the privy, a clump of snow clung to the wood long enough to get dragged into the cottage before falling off on the step with a plump splat that sent snowflakes everywhere. Looking out, she could see that there wasn't that much snow, but it was still coming down. She thought at once of Frank. He was due back later in the day with the bluestone footings from the inn, but he'd be waking in a camp and having to deal with snow. She didn't envy him. She hung by her hearth, waiting for the sound of horses. She kept worrying about his being out there on the road in the snow alone. It bothered her beyond reason. She tried several times to distract herself by working on some tinctures of rosemary that she'd planned for solstice gifts, but couldn't focus on the process. She gave it up after time, afraid that she'd make a mistake and burn the oil she was trying to extract. By mid-morning she was certain that something had happened, and that she needed to do something about it. Her agitation made her skin feel hot, and she stepped back from the fire in confusion. The room had suddenly got much hotter, hot as summer, except the room was still the same. A small fire wasn't throwing that much heat. Her eyes widened as she realized that she was having a hot flash. Her own body was causing the heat. She'd been with Mother Gilroy some ten winters back and helped the poor woman through what she called her winter of heat. She calmed herself, or tried to. She breathed deliberately in, held it for a moment, and then blew it out. The room wasn't quite cold enough to see her breath, but it felt good on the fevered skin of her face and hands. She loosened her collar and flapped her shift a bit to pump some air around under her clothing. Then she thought of Frank again. 
possibly lying dead beside the road, crushed by a shifting stone in the lorry wagon or pinned under it, unable to get free, slowly freezing to death out there in the snow. Oh, mother, help me. It was less prayer than disgusted grumble. She knew her mind was going full bore, but she wasn't thinking clearly at all. She crossed to her bed, kicked off her boots, and crawled back into the bedroll. The flash was subsiding. The room was cold, and she needed to get a handle on her emotions before she did something stupid, like herring down the pike in search of a man who'd undoubtedly be driving along, huddled in his driving cloak, sipping a hot mug of tea and singing a body song. The idea of Frank singing a body song made her giggle, but the warmth of her bedroll reached into her and soothed her jangled spirit. She took a deep breath of the cool air, then snuggled into the woolen blankets and was surprised to find sleep waiting for her, ready to pounce. All oh, mother, help me. More sigh than prayer, she wasn't sure she'd actually said it before the wave of darkness washed over her. Snow fell softly outside the tent of boughs. She crooned a bit as she roused and noted that the storm had not yet blown itself out. She puffed up her feathers but was unable to get really warm. With a loud caw, she launched herself off the limb and into the falling snow. She snapped at a few of the flakes as she soared through them, banking sharply and winging across the village. The ground was blurry in the dim light and soft blanket of new-fallen snow, but she watched carefully for the small animals that might give her their lives to keep hers going. At the gap in the trees she turned and followed man's wide path. The exercise warmed cold muscles, but the snow obscured her vision, and she found herself sailing only a few feet above the road, down in the gap between the trees, scanning for food, looking for something. She heard it before she saw it, the jingle sound and the muffled rumble of hoof and wheel gave her warning enough to swoop sideways and avoid the wagon that loomed out of the curtain of snow. She cawed in alarm and circled once, eyeing the man propped up in the seat, the snow coating the brim of his hat and dusting across his shoulders. She dodged away through the trees. The attention of men was something to be avoided. With a shock, she realized she'd left her own territory and turned herself toward home. It wouldn't do to be caught here. She knew the pair who raised their young in this patch, and they guarded it fiercely. The call she'd made might have alerted them, so she kept silent and concentrated on moving quickly through the forest until she'd returned to her own turf. She celebrated her return by calling loudly three times to warn off anybody who may have thought she'd left. Then she remembered the house where there were sometimes rabbits. She cawed once more and picked up her pace. Perhaps there'd be a rabbit today. Tanith felt exuberant as she broke through the surface of sleep. She crawled groggily out of her nest. It would be a while yet, but she felt much better knowing he was safe and on his way back. She scurried to the hearth and tossed a couple more sticks on the fire. Today she would stay home and not visit Amber or Sadie, as was her wont. Solstice was coming, and she needed to think of what she could make for her friends. She fanned the coals with her wing and blew on it. Her lips wouldn't blow. There was no pucker. There was no give, just a long, horny bill. And she realized she was still raven, or partly raven, or... She awoke with a start and a banging in her chest. She held her hands up and looked at them. Fingers, yes. Fingers were good. She pursed her lips and blew before she dared touch her face to see. She lifted the woolen blankets and looked down at her normal body, the cold air of the cabin washing the length of her, chilling her sweat. She pulled the blankets back down and held onto them tightly. The banging in her chest became a banging in her head and then it stopped. Her eyes flew open and her hand went to her chest to feel... But then the banging began again, and she realized that it was somebody at the door. Mother Fairport, Mother Fairport, are you all right? 
She opened her mouth to speak, and the croak that came out scared her until she realized her own dried throat and swallowed once to moisten it before calling again. I'm fine. She threw herself out of her bed and took one more inventory of extremities before slipping into her boots and hurrying to the door. She released the latch and swung it open to see Sadie standing there, bundled against the cold and carrying a basket over her arm. I'm fine, really. She stood back. Come in and warm yourself, my dear. Sadie smiled brightly. Her cheeks were pinked by the wind and cold, but she seemed energized by the snow. She came in and hurried over to stand by the side of the fire, where the snow dripping off her boots and clothes would fall on the side of the hearthstone and soon evaporate. Tanith closed the door securely, even as she peeked out to see the snowfall tapering off, and even what might be a ray of golden sun trying to work through the overcast. When you didn't come over after breakfast, Amber and I thought you might be under the weather, Mum. Sadie pulled down her muffler and extricated her arm from the basket. Tanith pulled a couple of sticks from the wood box and poked up the fire. She smiled tentatively. I'm fine, Sadie, really. I just didn't want to go out in the snow, so I stayed close to the fire. I got drowsy and saw no good reason not to go back to bed. Sadie didn't look convinced, but she put the basket on the mantelboard. Well, I brought you a couple of loaves of fresh bread, Mum, and there's some cheese in there, too. She looked around the small house and smiled. You keep things so neat. Tanith snorted. It's just me here, and I don't have that much to spread around. She nodded her head in the direction of Sadie's house. You've got your two, Thomas, all your things, all their things, and then visitors and hangers-on. She shook her head with a warm smile. Your house is full of joy, Sadie. Joy isn't neat. Sadie looked at the older woman for a moment before crossing to her and giving her a big hug and kiss on the cheek. Thank you, Mum. Her voice was a husky whisper. You're welcome in my house any time, you know. Thank you, child. I'll take you up on that, never fear. By spring, you'll be sick of seeing me laying about on your hearth. Sadie pulled back to look her in the eye before hugging her even harder. That will never happen, Mum. Ever. Sadie released her suddenly and started bundling up. Well, I better get back to my little house full of joy before the children decide to experiment with how well blankets burn on the hearth. We'll be having dinner with Amber and William if you'd like to join us, Mum. Tanith nodded with a smile. Thank you, my dear. Perhaps I'll pop over there this afternoon. Sadie grinned as she finished wrapping up. Frank should be back today. Tanith smiled. Yes, and just in time. Mum? Sadie looked up, confused. Tanith waved a hand. Snow falling. William wanted to get the roof up before the snow. Oh, this is nothing. I bet it'll be gone by tomorrow. This time of year we get a bit of snow one day and go back to fall the next. Makes a mess, but doesn't stay around. Hunter's moon is like that. Once we hit the solstice. She shivered dramatically. Then the snow will get serious. She shook her head. Now, with the foundation stones that Frank's bringing, they'll have a frame up within a week and a roof on by the new moon. You see if they don't. Tanith was surprised. That fast? Sadie nodded with a grin. They're men, but they can move when they want to, and there hasn't been this much excitement here in ages. Her musical laugh bounced off the rafters, and Tanith held the door for her while she climbed out and back into the snow. The sun had broken through, and while there were still flakes in the air, they sparkled brightly as they tumbled to earth. Sadie held out her hands to her sides, palm up. See, Mum? Almost stopped. I bet it's half melted by nightfall. I hope so. I'm not quite ready for snow yet. Sadie laughed again and gave a little wave as she headed back to her house, taking kicks at the snow as she walked just to see the sparkling drifts fall back to the ground. Tanith couldn't help but laugh softly to herself. The terror of her waking dream had dissipated, and if her vision were true, then Frank should be along within a couple of hours. Remembering her vision, she frowned stuck her head closer to the door, looking out to see if the raven had, in fact, come back. She didn't see anything and had almost closed the door when she heard the faint thump on the roof, followed by some scratching sounds. 
A small fall of snow cascaded down in front of the open door. Well, there you are. She said it out loud, wondering if the raven would hear or understand. She closed the door and latched it, listening to the scrabbling sound on her roof. She looked around for a moment before pulling yesterday's bread heel from her bread box and broke it into several pieces in the bottom of a flat basket. Her root cellar yielded one of the wild apples, and she scraped her leftover oatmeal from the morning's pot into the side. She looked around but didn't have much else that looked appropriate and was leery about putting out too much. Conscious of the rest of the village, she opened her back door, pushed the snow back from the threshold with her broom, clearing the loose snow from a small area before sliding the basket out onto the ground. Thank you, my dear. Here's a bit of breakfast for you and payment for your efforts. Sorry, I have no rabbit today. She felt strange talking to the raven and wasn't even sure the bird could hear her, but the scrabbling sound of talons made a deliberate-sounding scratch, and Tannis saw the large bird sail out toward the tree line a few yards before turning and flying back toward the house. The raven landed on the snow a few feet from the back door and eyed her, or more probably the basket of food, but didn't approach any closer. With a feeling of something like awe, something like fear, she swung the door closed and clicked the latch down. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.